you have your copy of God's Word, please go ahead and find Ezekiel chapter 36. And as you're finding that, let me say that, beloved brethren, it is a joy to be here to see each and every one of your faces. Thank you for coming, for investing the time and the resources to make it here. I pray that through means like this, our churches can come together in real and tangible ways to collaborate for the sake of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, in order that we may see collectively together many sons brought to glory. The Lord has given to me an insatiable desire for Christian fellowship among like-minded brethren. Our family spent several years in Central America, and it was there that I learned the importance of like-minded fellowship and collaboration in the gospel. We need one another, don't we? It's for this reason I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be here with you. I consider it a great honor and a privilege to have been invited to minister God's word to you this morning. I trust in the same manner that you have likewise come prepared, indeed, to feast from the word of God. I bring with me fraternal greetings from the brethren at Emmanuel Baptist Church there in Verona. Now, as we now traverse our way through chapter 15 of our Confession of Faith, I felt it always helpful for us to keep in mind the proper place of our confession. We must, without hesitation, declare that indeed the confession is not above nor equal with the sacred scriptures, but indeed it is a faithful distillation of what the Bible teaches that is, our confession of faith, we believe it because it is thoroughly biblical and we are unashamed to confess those doctrines that are contained therein. We are not Reformed Baptists because it is the trendy thing to do now, but we are Reformed Baptists because we believe the Scriptures to teach these very truths. Amen. This confession unites us. It brings us together. And it is that which we share in common as our gospel labors are united. We have a common confession here before us. And one of those good confessions that we make is the absolute necessity of repentance unto life and salvation. Amen? Amen. When we hear the word repentance, perhaps a whole slew of ideas, thoughts, and concepts flood into our minds as torrents of rushing water. And I would venture to say that for many Christians... Their understanding of repentance has not been properly formed and shaped and molded by the Holy Word of God. Because if you genuinely belong to Christ, then repentance will be one of the most beautiful, real, and vital concepts of your Christian life. When we hear repentance, our flesh, due to the remaining sin within us and our minds that have been taken captive by the godless ideologies of this world, immediately balk and bristle against the beautiful nature and the good news of true repentance. Look again at the title of our confession of faith. Of repentance unto life and salvation. Brethren, we must love repentance. We, above everyone else, must cherish and adore and be so thankful to our Father who is in heaven for this gift of repentance that He has given to His beloved and precious people. Why, you say? Because it is life. And because it is salvation. And without repentance there is no forgiveness of sins. God willing in our time in this session. I intend to plot our course through paragraph 3 of chapter 15. 
in that of a simple exposition. It would be very useful for you if you pulled out the Trinity hymnal so you can go along and follow easily with me because there is a lot there. One of the challenges in having four different speakers on a given topic is that there may be some overlap. But brethren, this is a good and it is a wonderful thing. If we hear repeated themes, ideas, concepts, phrases, and even passages of Scripture, it is because God wants to tighten down these biblical truths deep into our consciences and our souls in order that we may believe, receive, rest, and have faith in them. Because, oh beloved, how quick are we to forget? One of the benefits of also being the first speaker is that you haven't heard much of the material yet. <laughs> so I pray that I don't overstep my pastor brothers, but if you see Pastor Rice or Pastor Henson scribbling some notes diligently, don't worry, they came prepared. Trust me, I assure you of that. But the Lord may be calling some new things into their minds and their hearts that we, the people of God, need to hear this day. So with these introductory things said, let us now turn our attention first to God's Word. Before we look at our confession. Ezekiel chapter 36. And I want to begin there in verse 22. This is the word of the living God. Therefore say to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God. I do not do this for your sake. O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. <clears throat> then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers you shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields, so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and abominations. Not for your sake do I do this says the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. This is quite a sobering passage as we contemplate the idea of repentance. This passage, though, first should call to our own minds the wonderful blessings, the wonderful realities of the new covenant as our brother has already reminded us. As the prophet proclaims that new covenant which finds culmination when the seed of the woman comes into this world in order to deliver his people from their captivity. What are some of the ideas or the themes here? Well, we heard of cleansing and forgiveness of sins. I will cleanse you, verse 25, from all your filthiness, from all your idols. 
We hear of the doctrine of adoption there in verse 28. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Verse 26 speaks of a new heart. Verse 27, obedience that flows from regeneration. And verse 31, a true, genuine repentance. And what does the Word of God tell us here? It's all for the glory of God's great name. Mm -hmm. Much more could be said on this passage of Scripture, and probably should, but for the sake of time and our topic at hand, let's examine paragraph 3 of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, as well as we're going to see many other texts that will take us in the way that we must go. So be prepared to do diligence, to follow along with me. We're going to examine many texts of Scripture this hour. Let's read there paragraph 3 now of our Confession of Faith. It says there, this saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. There's a lot there, isn't there? But how beautiful it is to read such a clear and concrete definition of what repentance is. I'm sure it will take you no time to realize that the modern evangelical church doesn't preach a repentance like this. Mm -hmm. We have lost so much of genuine repentance, and it's for this reason we have to be diligent stewards of God's Word to understand what indeed the Bible tells us that repentance is. We have paragraph 3 for us, giving us that concrete definition of repentance. Now it's long, but you can see the intricate parts that make up true biblical repentance. And I think it would be helpful perhaps to condense our, our, our definition just a bit of repentance for a moment. And Keech's Catechism does just that for us in question 94. Question 94 reads, what is repentance unto life? And the answer is, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. First, let's look at what our confession says. It says that repentance unto life and salvation, glance there with me, it says in our confession, this saving repentance is an evangelical grace. Repentance, brothers and sisters, is the good news of the gospel of Christ. It is not a legal grace in which we earn something or merit eternal life or salvation, or even that we are terrified into repenting based on false claims or false promises, but it is freely given to us in the gospel by God. It is an act of pure grace. Through repentance, beautifully paired now with faith, we are pardoned, we are saved, we are cleansed, we are washed of all of our sins. Repentance and faith coupled together bring salvation to the people of God. Now, where are we to find these truths in the Word of God? Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. 
Acts chapter 5 and verse 31 here, this text beautifully tells us that indeed repentance is a gift from God. Not one that we have earned or merited, but it comes from God, it flows from Him, its origin is of Him. Acts 5.31, look there with me. Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Turn with me a few chapters over, Acts chapter 11. There in verse 18, we saw previously that it's God who gives repentance, a gift that only He can bestow. And here, nothing more. This passage helps us to solidify that. Acts eleven eighteen reads this way. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. God bestows and He grants and He gifts repentance. He confers it upon all who believe and receive Christ. Just as faith is a gift of God, so indeed is repentance. From this we must understand that as Dr. Sam Waldron says, repentance is the plant that grows only in the renewed soil of the regenerate heart. And that plant, if paired by faith, will indeed grow as God gives the increase by His Holy Spirit. It will begin to blossom and bloom and flourish and then bear much fruit in the lives of His sheep. So repentance, this repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person, that is anyone and everyone who believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's good and wise to stop here in this moment. Because I know that there are some here, perhaps many, who struggle to believe that this could be true for me. You say I've done wicked things. The most vile things. I don't deserve anything but hell and condemnation. But let me say to you, my dear friend, that there is no sin too great which is beyond the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It doesn't matter who you are, where you were born, what you have done. And even as we heard, if you've dedicated your entire life to sin and lawlessness, you, my dear friend, if you have faith in the Savior, repentance in His name, you will indeed be saved. Amen. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. And for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Give place to these words in your hearts, dear brethren. Don't doubt, but only believe. Why is this the case? Why is it that anyone and everyone who confesses faith in Christ and blossoms forth the fruit of repentance in their life will be saved? Well, it is because it's the work of God. It's not a work of ourselves. It's a gift from above, causing us to turn from our sins and turn to the living God. And it is a reality that then is applied to our account by the Spirit of the risen Christ. In our day, there is much confusion about biblical terms, concepts, ideas, etc. This should not surprise us, though, because the nature of man's wicked heart, as he seeks to twist the Scriptures for his own purpose under the controlling influence of the prince of the power of the air, this was the same in the 17th century as it is today. So in order to help us understand the true nature of repentance and to set it apart from false repentance, we are presented next with the genuine marks of biblical repentance. It is the recipe that is required to have biblical repentance. 
If one of those ingredients are removed, then you do not possess true biblical repentance. It's like cooking a plate of food, perhaps spaghetti or something of that nature, but then you leave out the noodles and you're simply left with the sauce, the seasoning, the spices, the vegetables, and the cheese. What you don't have is spaghetti any longer. You have something else of a different nature. And the same is said with repentance, brethren. If you leave out any one of these ingredients, these marks that we're going to see, then you don't have true repentance. But what are these marks? Well, there are several. Look next with me there in our confession. It says next, being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin. Remember that person, any person who believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is a true God-given, Spirit-born sense and understanding of the wickedness of our sins. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to bring knowledge and conviction, recognition and realization of our sins. John 16, 8 reads, and we, when He has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in Him. The Spirit does bring to light our sins. And we will gain a godly recognition that indeed we are sinners. The man or woman who has genuine repentance doesn't dispute that fact that he or she is a sinner. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Genuine believers know the realities of their hearts. They know what truly dwells within and the Spirit accomplishes His work of showing us our sin. Revealing them to us. Making us aware and cognizant of them. And then giving us a godly discontentment with them. This discontentment makes us displeased with our sin. It's like the very cancer that grows within. We want it out. We want it removed. And there are many in this world who know and believe that they have done wrong. That something is not right, but there are not many who genuinely want to change. And the Spirit works repentance most primarily in the preaching of God's Word. This is what happens, doesn't it, in Acts chapter 2. Turn there with me to Acts chapter 2. The preaching of the Word of God going forth from the Apostle Peter. It was a preaching directed to the hearts and the consciences of the men who heard it. It was personal, and it demanded a response. Peter proclaimed to them their sin. Look there in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. However, brethren, repentance is not just recognizing that you're a sinner. It must be yoked with faith in Christ. Look next in our confession of faith. There we read that this individual 
doth by faith in Christ. It's for this very reason that the second ingredient or the second mark of genuine repentance is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As one has said, repentance pleasing to God is the repentance of the one who comes to God knowing that he deserves his just wrath and does not boast in his flesh, but comes solely on the basis of Christ's goodness and grace. Have you done that, dear brother? An all-important truth is given to us in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation. Nothing else, as He has revealed to us and offered to us in the Gospel. Faith cannot be removed from repentance. You see? And faith indeed has its object in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one or nothing else. Let's continue on. After we heard about the exhortation of faith in Christ. We now read that this person will humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency. And so what does this faith produce and bring forth in the lives of those who truly repent? Well, it brings humility. It brings godly sorrow. It brings a hatred of sin and a self-ashamedness. By faith, we come to God through Christ knowing that we are helpless, that we are lost, and that it is only the precious blood of Christ that can cleanse us and wash away all of our sins. Surely He scorns the scornful, but He gives grace to the humble, says Proverbs 8.34. 30, 3.34. Humility as opposed to self-exaltation and pride. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in due time you will be exalted. Cast all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Also, this is accompanied, these things that we have heard, by a godly sorrow. Look with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Here in this passage of Scripture, we read of the true nature of of godly sorrow. And it's contrasted with a worldly sorrow. Two very different things. One leads unto life, and the other leads unto death. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'll begin in verse 8, reading from there. The Apostle Paul writes, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. 
Brethren, this godly sorrow is that gift from God. Brought in us by the Spirit to drive us to humility, to mourn over the sins that we have committed. We mourn them because we have sinned against God and Him alone. We have offended a holy and most righteous God. Godly sorrow is not a sorrow that comes because we have been caught. Or that our sins have been brought to light in the sight of men. That is a worldly sorrow and produces nothing but death. On the other hand, godly sorrow must be the recognition that indeed we have broken God's law. We have sinned against Him. And we must detest that sin. And we must then return unto God. Godly sorrow has its substance and nature of faith. While worldly sorrow is nothing but unbelief. Our confession continues by saying a detestation of it. Our sin. Sin cannot be tolerated. It cannot be kept around like a little pet. Therefore, listen, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Thus, we must hate our sin with holy and righteous hatred, the same way that God himself hates sin and has no fellowship with it therein. It is against his nature. It's against his character. And when the spirit works deep in our souls, if we have faith in arresting upon his name, then we too will likewise detest our sins. By faith in Christ, we must hate our sin. Listen to Psalm 119, 128. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. Dear brethren, can you say with a clean conscience this morning that indeed those are my heartfelt thoughts about the law of God, about His holiness, His righteousness. I hate every false way. And that hatred, that shame, that godly sorrow even causes us to despise that about ourselves. Remember the words from the prophet Ezekiel, that you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. That's a tough passage, isn't it? J.C. Ryle beautifully explains this mark of true repentance. The heart of a penitent man is touched with deep remorse because of his past transgressions. He is Caught to the heart to think that he should have lived so madly and so wickedly. He mourns over time wasted, over talents misspent, over God dishonored, over his own soul injured. The remembrance of these things is grievous to him. The burden of these things is sometimes almost unbearable. But genuine repentance, and hear me very clearly, brothers and sisters, genuine repentance must never terminate with self. It always directs us back to God. If it ends with us, then it is, a, it is not a godly sorrow, it is a worldly sorrow. But if our eyes look to and behold Christ by faith, then that shame is turned into joy. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And it is here that we find a prayerful spirit behind that repentant soul that carries us each and every time to the throne of grace with boldness, with confidence in the finished work of Christ. Look now in our confession. Here we see this 
prayer for pardon and strength of grace, which shows us that we don't stay in this state of self-abhorrency. We don't wallow in the mire. But repentance is that bridge from self-abhorrency to the joy and the mercy and the grace of God. Prayer for pardon and strength of grace. Prayer unto God is another genuine mark of true repentance. Prayer is that offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to His will. In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Turn with me now to Zechariah chapter 12. As we see more of this part of our confession being opened up for us. I believe that the prophet will help us from what we have heard thus far and what we're seeking to prove. For there is great treasure to be found here in this passage. Zechariah chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. Listen carefully, brethren. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Matthew Henry says, Note, the genuine sorrows of a penitent soul flow from the believing sight of a pure Savior. Looking by faith upon the cross of Christ will set us a mourning for sin after a godly sort. Prayer and supplication must, by necessity, be the theme of a believer's life. Prayer for the pardon of our sins. Oh God, forgive me. Grant me repentance. Supplication for the removal of guilt. Laying hold by faith to those things that are ours in the gospel of Christ. Pleading with the Lord to then give us a tender and sensitive conscience of the things of God. Begging Him to give us strength and aid from, from the grace which flows down from heaven. Grace that we need in order to be faithful unto death. Prayer is that crucial ingredient of repentance. That element which is always present in the life of a genuine believer. It is one of the first things that a believer does and it shall ever accompany him until he breathes his last breath. But in addition to praying for God's forgiveness, we also ask him to grant us victory over our sins. Since we fully understand that we have already received it in Christ Jesus our Lord, we pray that God would indeed guard us from temptation and deliver us from the adversary and his evil schemes. And as a result, when we ask God for the strength to resist temptation and conquer our sins, we are vowing to follow His will rather than our own. We reject sin and then cling ever so tightly to God and His precepts. Once more, I appeal to Matthew Henry who says, You may as soon find a living man without breath as a living saint without prayer. There is a more plentiful effusion of the spirit of prayer now under the gospel that was under the law. And the further and the further the work of sanctification is carried in us, the better is the work of supplication carried on by us. We must be a people committed to prayer. Mm-hmm. Well, brethren, repentance, though, indeed has an end. It has a terminus, a goal. Genuine repentance bears much fruit. And we cannot miss this. It grants to us, as 
God's chosen and precious people, the purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. That's the fruit. At this point, the analogy of the illustration of repentance is complete. When we read these words, we must envision and see the true nature of turning from one's sin and by faith plotting a course unto obedience unto God. Now yesterday I drove down from Verona and it was somewhat around two and a half hours to get here. I can't tell you how many turns that I took, but it was quite a few. The GPS directed me this way and that way. We avoided traffic. And at every turn, though, there was always another direction that would follow. The turn always led to something else. It was never a turn to nothing. You turn away from a direction and head to a new one. That is to say you're turning to something with intention, with direction and purpose. And I say all this because we need to see repentance in the very same way. When we repent, when we turn from our sins, and then the Spirit directs us with intention and purpose to the things of God. Our turning is from sin and then unto God and His precious precepts. Dear brethren, focus in. Draw your attention, your gaze, in how the Spirit is operative in the life of the believer, even unto this. If fruits of repentance, fruits of obedience are not flowing and manifesting themselves in our lives, then we have not attained to godly, true, biblical repentance. J.C. Ryle observes again, The life of a penitent man is altered. The course of his daily conduct is entirely changed. A new king reigns within his heart. He puts off the old man. What God commands now he desires to practice. And what God forbids he now desires to avoid. He strives in all ways to keep clear of sin. And to fight with sin. To war with sin. And to get the victory over sin. Dear friends, is that your disposition? Lend your ears to the prophet Ezekiel once more. There in verse 25 of chapter 36... We have already read it. My brother Timothy has read it, but we need to hear it again. It says there in Ezekiel 36, 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. You see how this is indeed the work of the Lord? A true believer is one who walks in the paths of the Lord with the help of the Lord. He delights in the law of God. Indeed, his life is marked by obedience. That is its fruit. So can that be said of you, dear friends? That you have attained to this true Biblical repentance. Do these marks find their place in your own life? We need to be honest with ourselves. To ask God for help and clarity about the matter. And so in the few moments we have remaining, I desire nothing more than to take what we have heard and draw for us just a few brief applications. As we heard the Apostle Peter preaching, we likewise must understand that we are not passive bystanders when the Word of God is preached. Every single person must respond to the things which you have heard. The first point of application, and something we need to remember and consider again, 
is that repentance being an evangelical grace leads us to conclude that true repentance is that genuine response to the preached word of God. So I ask you, dear friends, do you love repentance? Have you attained to it? Are you diligently seeking out for it? Cry unto the Lord. Believe upon His name and find true repentance. And for those of you who have found it and find your place safely in the arms of Christ, we rejoice in that. But also you need to remember that the Lord's love that He has for His children. Revelation 3.19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. One of God's gracious gifts to His children is repentance. And we cannot ignore that. If you are a child of God, then indeed you must find hope. You must find solace in repenting and receiving fresh supplies of mercy and pardon. Day by day, moment by moment, second by second. It is His love, brethren, that brings us to repentance. We are being treated as sons and daughters. And we have the discipline of the Lord. Praise God, He has not left us in our sins. Amen? Amen. But He has graciously provided the way in which we must turn from them and turn unto Him. Oh, how loving of a Father do we have. Therefore, cherish and love your repentance. Cherish and love repentance. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be too proud to engage in it. Seek it with humility. And remember how good it is for your soul. Further, we need to remember collectively that this call to repentance is universal. Acts 17.30 reads this way, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Now, I imagine much more will be said on this by Pastors Rice and Henson, so I'll leave that for them. But from this, we know repentance is for everyone. From the youngest of children to the oldest of saints, even I ask you, pastors who are here, I ask myself, do you, my pastor brothers, love repentance? Not do you love preaching on repentance, but do you find in yourself that delight, hope, in life, in your own repentance. Our people, God's people, need pastors who love repentance and practice it in their lives. Robert Murray McShane famously said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. And holiness comes by way of repentance. If you're a member of a church, praise God for this, but you have much work to be done, you must pray earnestly, diligently, fervently for the holiness of your pastor. Pray for a sensitive and tender conscience for him. Pray for him to love the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pray that he is a humble and contrite man. That he is a man who knows repentance firsthand. Pray for the Lord to protect him from Satan's crafty designs. And pray that his heart would never be hardened to the things of God. Pray for shepherds after God's own heart. Next, brethren, we must remember the necessity of corporate repentance. We have spoken much about individual repentance, even looking and examining pastors, but we need to think about corporate repentance as those lampstands of Christ. 
Revelation 2.5, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Christ promises to build his church, but that does not mean that he will preserve every local church. A church that does not know and practice repentance will soon be unchurched by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So whether it's individual or corporate, we must all be given unto repentance. And we must all be given to that principle found in Matthew 3, 8. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. You, dear brothers or sisters, have your calling before you to bear much fruit worthy of repentance. Do not be self-deceived. You cannot be repentant if there is no genuine forsaking of sin. And there must be a full purpose and endeavor now after new obedience. You must search for it. Chase after it. It doesn't come naturally. Further, do not fall into the trap when the pendulum swings to the other extreme of legalism or perfectionism. Many genuine Christians wrongly think that if they have not attained perfection in this life, then they do not have true repentance. That is false and a lie from Satan. This is not the gospel. But the call is to forsake sin, to confess it, to find forgiveness and pardon every second of our lives. True, sinless perfection comes only in the state of glory. And so from this, we are called to peer and look and to expectantly await glory. Every time we repent, brothers and sisters, every time we find pardon, those fresh supplies of grace, our eyes and our heart, our affections must firmly be set upon Christ and behold it and bask in all of His glory. The patient saint should remember that glory will indeed come soon. Sin is only for a time. But in the consummation of all things, when our chief shepherd returns... For his beloved bride in glory and brings the new heavens and the new earth. That is the day when he will no longer have to repent. Sin will no longer be that reality. Our weary hearts will find that eternal rest. Glory will be the only thing that we can behold. Death but a memory. Pain long forgotten. Listen to the words of the Apostle John in Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice. From heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things and he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain the water of life to him who thirsts. And he who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God. And he shall be my son. Mm -hmm. Dear brethren, may we attain unto this repentance, unto life and salvation. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, how unworthy are we. Oh Lord, we confess our sins, which are so many. We cast ourselves down before you, 
asking even now to forgive us of our many sins, to grant us pardon and repentance, assurance and mercy. Give us that sober self-assessment. Lord, prick our conscience to the things that we have heard. Grant us repentance in areas that perhaps we have long forgotten about or tried to avoid. Lord, let us not leave here this day without reconciling and making right those matters of our own heart. But Father, we ask and plead and beg that you would give us hope, give us direction, help us to see clearly by the Spirit of God the pathway which is forward, because it is Christ alone in whom we trust. But feed us with your word. Help us to love your word. And Lord, we do pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Chief Shepherd, the first and the last, the beginning and the end.